Hello and welcome to Portrait of a Londoner. We're super excited to introduce our guest, Zoe Whitley, who is a curator and currently director of the Chisholm Gallery in East London. Zoe's worked at the V&A Museum, the Tate Galleries and the Haywood Gallery and is probably most well known for Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, an exhibition shown at the Tate Modern and which she co-curated with Mark Godfrey. In this episode, we talk to Zoe about how she came to being a curator, what she loves most about her work, as well as how she's paving the way and making space for others in this field. Zoe's a good friend of mine who I met at the school gates. Our daughters are the same age and went to the same school, but we've never spoken about her work. So I'm super excited for this one. Enjoy. Zoe, can you introduce yourself for our listeners and tell us about what you do? Sure. Um, hello, everyone who's listening to Portrait of a Londoner. <laughs> My name is Zoe Whitley, and Muna and I know one another because our girls went to the same primary school, so we used to see each other on the playground. Um, when I wasn't doing the school run, I was a curator, and now I'm very proudly the director of one of the nonprofit art spaces in London that I think does really some of the most exciting work and has been doing it for the past almost four decades. So to be part of that lineage is really exciting. Uh, But basically, I have spent the last 20 years working in art museums, the V&A, Tate, both modern and Tate Britain, uh, the Hayward Gallery, and then most recently starting at Chisholm Hale from lockdown last spring. Yeah. Chisholm Hale is, is pretty groundbreaking a space in itself, but it was founded by artists. Um, can you tell us more about the gallery and its ethos? Oh, sure. I'm really happy to. I think Chisholm Hale Gallery has such a special energy and such a special way of having recognised artists that have really become synonymous with the 1980s, the 1990s, and with the present uh, in the UK and beyond. Uh, In the 1980s, many artists who had previously had warehouse spaces around and in places like Butler's Wharf um, were kind of evicted. It was really that start of a repopulation of central London and property developers taking an interest. And many of the artists started to look in the East End for affordable properties. And Chisholm Hale Gallery is in a building that was a former veneer factory and brewery warehouse. And part of what gets me fired up about my job just generally is that sense of possibility that artists can see in, you know, a dilapidated warehouse that, Mm. and so the artists came and saw that this could be artist studios and what today is also Chisholm Hale dance space and also our gallery. So there were three different organizations coexisting under this one roof, but all doing really creative work. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey um, into art or the art world? Maybe what first attracted you into this space and maybe what 
uh, some of the challenges you faced along the way? Sure. Well, I think what first attracted me was that I was a kind of emo, arty teenager. So I made a lot of art in my spare time and drew a lot, um, kind of teenager stuff. So I remember like, opening up the CD case of Red Hot Chili Peppers and then trying to copy one of Anthony Kiedis's tattoos. And I didn't do too badly, but I'm definitely not an artist, but I've always been interested in artists and spent a lot of time in my city's local art museum, which at that time was the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And so I think just having access to artworks and seeing them and wanting to know who made them, how they were made. You know, I was looking at works by painters like Ed Ruscha. At the time, I didn't even know how to pronounce the name as it was written on the label. But, you know, I was also thinking like, oh, who puts that label there? Who chose this really awesome painting to be on the wall? So I think I was always interested in museums and what then I thought was how you could be close to artwork and hadn't really had any awareness of how one might work with living artists behind the artworks or anything like that. All of that came much later as a result of me being interested in museum work and then starting in an entry-level curatorial position at the V&A and then learning the ropes behind the scenes, like answering inquiries, uh, just storing and filing things properly, how you handle objects, how you number them, measure them, all of those kind of things that is that sort of caretaking that you're the custodian of these artworks that belong to the nation. I was actually really, really happy in that work. And then it was through that where occasionally an artist might come to have a conversation with one of the other curators, um, Shatipa Biswas, who actually lives not far from Chisenhale, came in to talk about her work with the person who was my boss at the time, Rosie Miles. And it was things like that that sort of clicked like, oh, wow, I'm looking at this artwork and now I'm hearing from the person who made it and mm. she's a real person. And I think that light bulb moment for whatever it was that, you know, you actually can talk to artists and find out what they're doing is something that was very, very exciting. And Rosie was actually the first person who took me to Chisenhale. I think that would have been in 2003. And we went to see an exhibition that had been um, presenting new work by Faisal Abduala, who was working in partnership with David Adjay. So it was one of David's first kind of public spatial sculptures. faced any challenges um along the way you know you're from the very beginning to your current position well sure I think we all do in various ways um and certainly being a black woman in the arts you know there are those intersectional issues to do with race and gender and all sorts of things I think for me it's just been a matter of how I found a support system often of other women of other women of color and black women going through similar things to help kind of get me through them. So I, th and also still being ultimately at the end of the day, like 
so interested in working with artists, but then you kind of find a way to keep going or find ways to address what isn't working. And I know there, there are lots of different routes to this. I know there are a lot of practitioners in the arts that I'm excited by who choose, say, not to work in institutions and to, to work in a different way and to have a more of a grassroots direct approach. I guess my personal way of addressing a lot of what I faced have been to try and figure out ways to make museums more welcoming to people coming in the doors um, so that they might not be racially profiled in a way that, you know, I might in the course of my working day or um, that colleagues who are coming up don't have to face the same issues. And I think that a lot of it just has to do with constantly questioning your processes like who are you who are you doing the work for who are you directing it to mm. if say the audience of your institution isn't representative of the population at large what are you doing to address that and with an exhibition like soul of a nation that i co-curated with my colleague mark godfrey i think there was a real opportunity to not only ask, but also answer a number of those questions and to say like, okay, if I want to make this exhibition for young Londoners, then how do we get them to come? Or even the step before that, we can't assume that they want to come or want to be here. So what other things might we put in place so that even if they get to know one artist's name that they didn't previously know, then maybe we're not the best person to do that. Maybe Zoe Ashton or Khalil Joseph or Cecilia Meke is better place to do that. So how do we work in collaboration with other people to, to make space and open things up? So I think, yeah, a lot of my challenges and setbacks are things that I just don't dwell on because mm -hmm. I find a way to say, well, actually, it's what it's the Toni Morrison quote, isn't it? Like the real work of racism is like it stops you from doing your work because mm -hmm. you're constantly having to prove yourself or to say, like, we have history, we have culture, we have these things. But actually to to press on and to acknowledge that those things are a given and we can actually change the spaces that we're in rather than just feel like we're we're powerless to do anything about them or that they're they're spaces that that can't change or won't change well it's interesting you meant you mentioned solivination because yeah i remember going along and seeing it and seeing it actually with 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 my daughter who was i don't know maybe seven or seven or eight at the time and being blown away by how many young you know young black black and brown people were, were kind of you know attending and going along and it was just so I mean and, and lots of other people obviously but it seemed to kind of spark a, an energy um and you said oh it definitely did I got so many hugs people would be like are you the person who did this and then I just get yeah. like big hugs all day long so I really yeah, yeah it felt really special I also traumatized my daughter's class because I took them there early on a weekend morning but you know some of the works are quite hard hitting and so they were just like oh 
Yeah, I think, I think um, my daughter was certainly blown away by the, the Malcolm X and the, you know, Dr. King and, you know, all of the, and it just, it, it, it sparked conversation about history and our history. And um, it was, it was wonderful. And it kind of links to my next question, because, you know, you have worked at the VNA and, and the Tates and how important, and you've touched on some of it, is it to you to showcase those marginalised artists, all those, you know, less visited art histories? And, and I know you're doing that with your work. And how are you planning to do more of that in the work that you're doing at Chisholm Hale? Yeah, I think, well, for me, it's crucial. I guess I just don't, I don't think about it as a kind of separate aim. Like today I'm going to be an activist or we're doing this work to redress the canon. You know, I just, there were artists that I'm really excited about. And part of it's sort of like, hey, wait, how come the work hasn't been seen in this context or, you know, in this country or, I think it can be easy for us, and maybe this is me just speaking from a gendered position to think like, oh, well, what I know, other people must already know. And then there's something about just being excited about sharing that and saying like, oh, well, if other people don't know, this is a really useful thing to know about, or you might be more excited, or you can take it further than I can. So. I think that so much of the work that I've been able to do has come from enthusiasm about that work and just saying like, this, this can exist. And yeah, I think that I've worked with a whole range of people. And I think that that's important too, because I think particularly in this kind of post-Brexit moment and seeing where we're going, that we don't become too retrenched, but knowing that Britishness means so many things, that who an artist is and what form their work can take means so many things. I guess I'm just always interested in that the fullest range of that possibility of not saying like, oh, well, an artist only means Mm. a French guy in a beret, you know, like, you know, if someone were to draw a stick figure in, you know, Pictionary or something, you know, that some of those things that are in our collective consciousness really do stick. And so the fact that, you know, I've worked with artists who've said, they've called up other artists collectives and said like, oh, well, do you know any black women artists? And the person on the other end of the phone would say no. And they're literally talking to one on the phone, but this kind of, this blindness or absence to what might be right in front of us. I think there's still a lot of exciting work to be done to, to tell those stories. And I think to do it in a lot of different ways, you know, there's blogs, podcasts, you know, there's TV. I think there's there's not just one way. Exhibition making isn't the only way to tell those stories. Artists are people, so it's as different as people. So some have a very deep sense of self. Some might be making from a profound sense of self-doubt or like seeking self-discovery. I think mm-hmm. there, there are a lot of different entry points, but there is maybe a fundamental sense of this, I don't know, like something like deep in the belly, like you just have to make. So, you know, you're not necessarily making for an audience. Some people are but you're also making for yourself or using you know, it. So it's not that you sit down at your proverbial easel, 
because someone's called you up and said, I'd like some artwork for a show. Like the work just comes or, and I don't mean that in an inspired kind of way. Cause I think that that can oversimplify things too. It is work, but I think that, yeah, artists are compelled to make and to put something out into the world. And then hopefully there were other people responsive and receptive to that or who maybe want to be kind of thinking partners or critical friends within that process. But ultimately, artists make art, you know, mm-hmm. curators can't curate unless there's art, art that's curate. made. Right. But um, the, the artists are making work irrespective of what's happening at the end yeah coming back to yourself um and and your own career have you is there something you're particularly proud of is there you know you mentioned all the nation but are are there any other that's like my baby (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah yeah. I mean I I do feel very that was like 24 7 blood sweat and tears for Mm. a lot of years like Mark and I spent a lot of time away from our families to to make that happen and for something to then yeah I guess we had these kind of equal and opposite starting points which made it work really well that I was sort of like Mark's kind of like what could possibly go wrong and I was sort of like everything could go wrong (laughs) and so I think together we were able to yeah just bring our a-game so that that I was very proud of and then I guess weirdly I'm proud of an exhibition of my that I've co-curated with a friend and colleague, Nancy Ierson, that I've never even seen. So um, Elijah Pierce's America was at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia um, from last September until this January. But of course, because of COVID, I wasn't able to physically see the exhibition. So yeah, the, the catalog has turned out really well. And that it's its own and slightly different thing, of course. It's not the physical artworks that people can experience. But having gotten to work on this project about uh, a woodcarver whose own father had been born into slavery, but then thinking about how we wanted to just look at his work in a slightly different way that maybe cast a different light on his own ability to, to tell his story and to make his artworks kind of slightly outside some of the ways folk art has a kind of narrative around it about who discovers, quote unquote, a self-taught artist that I think was an interesting project. And I just really like working with other people. So it's also really fun to work with Nancy because we've been friends since we were both curators at Tate. Yeah, you speak really fondly about um well your your energy and drive and and what the artists bring you in terms of you know keeping you energized and keeping you moving forward with a lot of your work and you touched on how you know covid has kind of brought things to a bit of a standstill um just in terms of people being able to access museums which is really really you know really has been really sad but also there is hope and we are hopefully going to be able to get back in these spaces again can you tell us what you love most about museums and galleries and some of the places that or galleries that you particularly love not just in the UK but around the world yeah um gosh there's so so many I guess locally the Horniman has been certainly for as a parent who had a young child you know she's not as young anymore but having a museum that was free and on our doorstep where you could just 
go and see and do things and, you know, change your, your context and your outlook. I think that's felt important. I have loved being part of a cultural ecosystem here in the UK where national museums and collections are free to access to the public. So I think that's really important that it shouldn't be, you know, art for some people or art who can for people who can afford it. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I guess I've just had so many interesting experiences in a whole range of museums and galleries like Ethiopia's National Collection in Addis. Um, but the, my little trick is, especially so you don't have like very bored kid rolling their eyes saying, can we go now, <laughs> is any space that I go to, I have my daughter take me around. I basically say like, I can't promise I'll know the answer or what we're looking at, but why don't you take me to what you're interested in and tell me about that. And also not to make the trips too long. You know, it doesn't have to be this worthy cultural day out and we've spent five hours in the museum slogging through it, you know. It can be it can be shorter and lighter than that. And then when someone's like, can we please have a cheese sandwich? Like, yes, let's go. Um, so yeah, I think I've had some some good experiences precisely really, on that yeah I mean lots of them are really adapted so you can kind of you can go anywhere in the world now can't you online and, and kind of view pieces and do all of this amazing stuff um virtually from your you know the comfort of your own home I was going to ask you about obviously you, you joined Chisholm Hill right at the start of the pandemic and that's true how have things affected you know how the events affected the work that you do and how can people get involved oh yes well I mean we Fundraise 100% for our work. So certainly people can take a look because we welcome um, donations. But I think more than that, people can get involved in a lot of different ways. Just as you've said, Muna, the work doesn't stop, even if the work has to happen in other ways. So we've partnered with a fellow arts charity, Art Is, to embed an artist in our neighbors, on our local primary school, Chisholm Hale Primary, which is immediately across the street. So for the whole academic year, all of the key stage two students get to work with a really talented artist named Julia Kuto. And that felt important too, that art isn't something that is a luxury or you get tapped on the shoulder because you draw well, but everyone benefits from that, what would happen if, you know, that creative possibility that made Chisholm Hale Gallery come into existence. There's something about having artists around and thinking about how that can change your outlook and your mood. It might make you think differently about that math homework you didn't want to have to do. So we've tried to come up with equally resourceful and creative solutions to how we can be a better neighbor and serve our community. Um, we are developing a project to work with um, an artist named James Ledbetter and the adolescent inpatients at the Coborn Center for Adolescent Mental Health. So not all of our work is work that can be seen publicly, but it's still being led by artists and making an impact. But we were about to open an exhibition long awaited that had been delayed by COVID by um, an artist based in Shanghai named Yuji. So I think the first way people can get involved is if we are able to reopen on the 22nd of May, which is what we're planning for, 
that, you know, please stop by. Our exhibitions are free. You can get a sense of who we are and what we do. We're very happy to talk to you. It's a, a friendly and approachable gallery if you're worried about that or might have a, a misconception that galleries aren't friendly places. We are friendly. It's always good to hear about what you love about where you live. So what do you Aww. love about where you live? I live in southeast London in Honor Oak Park, and we have a kind of unconventional home life because we live on the high street. So I love that we have a very friendly high street because, you know, my neighbors are Hassan and Nisha, the dry cleaner, and Lisa, the florist. And yeah, it sometimes feels like that scene in Sesame Street, or at least the episodes I used to watch in the early 80s. Um, there's this happy little song about who are the people in your neighborhood. And I think I actually do know the people in my neighborhood. You know, I know the names of people who work at Sainsbury's. Um, and there's something I love about that, that friendliness. We also have a lot of access to green spaces. I've spent most of this lockdown wearing like mud spattered jeans and taking my dog out for a walk. And never, I never thought of myself as an outdoorsy person, but I've been enjoying that a lot. And another question that we ask, um, try to ask everyone is how have your parents influenced you? Oh, that's a good one. I think the biggest way is that they've just instilled in me a kind of insane work ethic. Yeah, whatever people think of me, nobody can say I'm not a hard worker. And I definitely get that from my parents. Was that something you fought back against when you were younger? Um, No, actually, I think I think I was very this probably tells you a lot about me, but my, my godmother tells me that once when I spent the night at her house, I was about four, I kept saying like at regular intervals, like, am I being cooperative? Because my mother, I think, had drilled into me before I go, like, you have to cooperate. So no, I didn't, I've not, I haven't ever been a very rebellious person. I think I've kind of channeled that rebellion or questioning into my work in mm. some ways. I think you've touched on on how people can get involved but is there anything that you want to talk about or that you want people to be aware of anything like that I think that really we just want to say Chisholm Hale Gallery exists for those of you who who don't know about it certainly those of you who are in Tower Hamlets Hackney Newham if you're visiting Victoria Park you know please walk across the bridge and the canal and come to Chisholm Hale Gallery we are right there on Chisholm Hale Road in a residential neighborhood. And it's a really great place. So I'm hopeful that with this kind of staged reopening that we can welcome people back from May onward. And I feel like that at this moment, that's the most important way people can get involved is to come and experience Yuji's exhibition. You know, we want to offer you something. It doesn't have to be transactional but if you if you want to donate or help us out then talk to us more and see what we're about and we take it from there but I think the main thing is we'd love for people to come and and see the exhibitions that we put on I think there's a lot of people who are really keen to get back into <laughs> yeah so I don't think you'll be short of any no members. and does Chisholm Hale do you know I'm sure you do know can you tell us the website and the social sure we social. are Chisholm Hale Gallery on Instagram, mm-hmm. and we are uh, at 
chisholm.org.uk online. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking to us. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Zoe Whitley as much as we did. Please get in touch via the socials. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Instagram at Portrait of a Londoner, Facebook Portrait Londoner, and we're also on Twitter at Portrait Podcast. You can also email us, portraitofalondoner at gmail.com. We've got lots of really exciting episodes to come. Thanks for listening.